0: This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to Truth and Just Us. I'm Janet Varney.
2: And I'm Zach Weaver. And we're Bob's co-hosts on the Friday follow-up episodes.
1: That's right. And you are hearing our voices introducing today's episode because Bob is out on assignment, of course. But he still really wanted to make sure to get a fresh episode out to you all so that we can keep making progress on season 12 as we continue to examine the season's case in Pinion Pines.
2: So today's episode, we are so excited to bring back two expert voices, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from the L.A. Not So Confidential podcast, who've graced us with their perspective and experience once before this season when they did some analysis on the police interview with Robert. And in case it's helpful, those episodes are Season 12, Numbers 3 and 4.
1: Yeah, it was so great. And today's episode pertains specifically to Season 12, Episode 15, which was Javier's full interview. During the Friday follow-up for episode 15, after we had heard that uh, interview, we got a ton of great feedback from listeners, and I have to say, a lot of folks brought up that it would be so incredible to have Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh back to talk about this police interview as well, because they were so helpful with their insights on the interview with Robert.
2: So after a short break, we're going to dig into Javier's full interview with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott in this season 12, episode 17, The Doctors Return."
1: Okay, we're back. Doctors, how does it feel to have an episode named after you for your triumphant return to truth or justice? Welcome in. I love that title, The
3: Doctor's Return.
1: It's a sequel.
3: It's
4: Seriously, a sequel. I wasn't expecting that. I'm like <laughs> I'm really excited now. I'm like I'm I'm so happy also that we made an impression and got people thinking enough to, you know, want us back for what opinions we can offer. That's so cool. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Your podcast has had such an influence on me um, that I find myself, when working on stuff for Truth and Justice, I really sort of try to hear your voices in my head. I try to think kind of, well, what do I think based on these, you know, many, many episodes, you just had your hundredth episode, I've listened to them all, some some of them more than once, um, what would, you know, f- how do I sort of take that information and, like generate Something that may or may not be a total misquote in my head of what you guys would say. So, oh my unfortunately, god, Janet, Janet has a little run. internalized object have, of both I have a baby <laughs> Dr. Scott and a baby Dr. Shiloh in my brain, telling me what to think. It's very scary but wonderful. Um, so, very quickly before we get into this, um, again, if you have not listened to Javier's full interview, please go back and listen to episode fifteen. This will not make sense to you if you don't. Uh, and if you did for some reason not get a chance to listen to their analysis of Robert. Interview. It's also so, so beneficial to give that a listen. Um, we talked about your credentials when you were here the first time. But Dr. Shiloh, if memory serves, you are a licensed psychologist in California. Same goes for you, Dr. Scott. Uh, Shiloh, you are specifically sort of a specialist in forensics, right, a forensic psychologist. And I know for the last five years, you've also worked as a law enforcement psychologist. You work in crisis negotiation. You work in training and officer wellness. You're very busy.
3: That's correct. That's that's it. You didn't did key.
1: Okay. Um,
3: probably the only thing is just I'm a former
1: cop, also. So that's a big thing for me to over. I
3: might be <laughs> focusing in on this detective's interview today,
1: which is where my I love it.
3: laser mind went.
1: We're excited about that. That's huge. And you you both both had some great feedback about the officer in Robert's interview as well. So we absolutely <laughs> wanted to touch base yeah. on that. <laughs> That sound said many things without. I heard the eye roll. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Scott, you are also a forensic psychologist. You're a clinical psychologist, marriage and family therapist. You are currently working as well uh, in law enforcement as a psychologist. Uh, I know you work through Los Angeles County Jail, right? And in the Department of Corrections, is that uh, accurate?
4: Yes, those were that those were my sort of entry into the forensic world.
1: And do you also, are you a responder in the sense of if there is something that may be a mental health issue that would be better served to have um, a mental health professional and an officer respond? Is that something that you uh, do or am I making that up in my head?
4: No, that's accurate. Um, I'm part of a, without naming the agencies that I work for, um, I'm part of a co-responder model where I'm a mental health clinician working in conjunction with a law enforcement um, individual, either a police officer uh, or a detective. And while the specifics of my current responsibilities are to follow up in the community after crisis events, to go to the individual who may be hospitalized or may be jailed and, you know, do an evaluation, see if they're appropriate for diversion. If, if the mental health component of their functioning Impacted why they were involved in a legal incident, then I may work with the court system. It's, it's, we do a little bit of everything, but I'm always, you know, I carry a bunch of paperwork with me because there's always the possibility that I may have to actually put somebody on a psychiatric hold in in the commission of, of my daily duties.
1: Well, I know, Zach, you are such an advocate for, you know, mental health and wellness and wanting to get the best response possible from law enforcement when it is a situation that may be a little more of a gray area so absolutely. I wanted to just point that out because that's yeah. something he's very passionate about right Zach
2: absolutely no that, that's that's extremely important I, I cannot I, I you know I have enough mental health issues in my life my family that I, I cannot push it enough to say that we need more help in that field and I'm so I'm so happy to hear that that's something you really you work well with
4: Yeah, it's a big deal. Co-responder models are the the wave of the future, and they should be. Um, And I got to give credit where credit's due for anybody that's interested. This actually all started in Memphis, um, because in Memphis, Tennessee, they had a really high number of uh, individuals who uh, lost their lives as a result of mental health episodes in conjunction with law enforcement. And, I, you know, I, we give them all the credit in the world for saying, for standing up and saying, well, also there was some li- a lot of liability as well. So sure. definitely money's a factor, but they re- realized we got to get on this. We got to get something going. And um, they brought in a really great social worker, a really great psychologist that developed this whole idea of de-escalation you know, in the same way you want to de-escalate a crisis hostage negotiation, you want to, as best as you can, you want to de-escalate the mental health symptoms or redirect them so that you can avoid a use of force or deadly force. Um, and it's it's a challenge. But, um, yeah, there are some really impressive law enforcement agencies across the country that are that are in- engaging in this in a way that has, is like a snowball effect. It's happening more so and more funny. as it should.
1: Yeah, that's,
2: that's really actually wonderful to hear for sure.
1: Right. And, you know, with this, uh, with this particular interview, and we'll get a little deeper into it further in, because even just in the chronology of how it sort of plays out with Javi and with the detective, but... You know, there is some sensitive material in this episode and there's some it's very much sort of hearsay material. But in terms of risk factors and victimology, you know, with whatever um, kid gloves uh, you feel comfortable, like maybe we'll lean into that a little bit if that doesn't feel appropriate because it feels like it's third party. We totally respect that as well. Um, But obviously you have the backgrounds where, you know. We we tried to dig into it. And then I, th- I think we even said like, oh, boy, we really need Scott and Shiloh if we're even going to try to step into this territory.
4: Well, I would like to I'd like to actually put that put back some props on all of you um, for the level of professionalism and compassion that you had in your last episode talking about what Javier shares during his interview and I got to, and I got to tell you, in a way, I feel schooled in a really great way because I was, I just jumped in and I went full forensic and a uh, uh, behavioral observation, and I wasn't taking in um, that until I, you know, I watched, listened to the video, I listened to the interview, then watched it, then listened to your episode, and went, oh shit, I've got to go back. And look at it through another set of eyes, given this, the level of information that is really intimate that's being shared. And then, and so thank you for that, because that gave me an extra dimension to consider.
1: I think that, that translates to Zach and I are very in touch with our teenage selves. Oh, we sure <laughs> oh, are. Definitely. <laughs> so it, <laughs> we really, sure are. It, it really, it rose to the surface very quickly. Um, but that being said, Would you like to you know I went back and revisited likewise your uh, great interview with Bob a few episodes ago it's been a while now I realize as we were kind of counting through the episodes and one of the things that we did kind of start out with uh, on that interview and we totally defer to you on this but was kind of taking it from the what's the detective doing what's his approach how is that you know eliciting the information that it is do you want to start on that side or do you want to jump into Javi stuff.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. I would, I, it, if I may, back up just a Please. scotch further. Yeah. When So I listened to the audio, and then we received the video of um, Javier's interview. And for everyone listening, last time we were here, we knew nothing, and now we have gone back and listened to the full season. So I just want to put oh, that out there. Thank we have more context. Um, but in, <laughs> I was listening to the audio, then I watched the video, and when I was looking— Some research, as I do, when people are trying to judge or tell when people are truth-telling or not. Of course, I came across something fascinating that when— So first of all, tons and tons of research shows human beings are terrible at telling when people are lying. And people who you think would be good at it, like cops and judges and teachers— are even worse than just random college students. So, that's so everyone who's watched this video, whatever you think based on body language, throw it out the window because I'm throwing it out the window.
4: Absolutely,
3: um, that's great to know. It really the students who were guessing better than police officers in studies would get it right half of the time, so it's a flip of the coin for a regular person oh, when you wow. get the confidence when you get the confidence and think, "Oh well, I know because I'm better and I have this job and this is what I do, it gets worse the wow. The correct ratio goes down so there's that, but I thought it was also really interesting this little piece of research that I found where um, when they're doing these studies, if you listen to an audio recording rather than watching the video, people had a better correct percentage of being able to tell if the person was lying or not. It still wasn't great because we're terrible at it. But when you take out all of the, I, I never
2: would have guessed that
4: ever. Mm-hmm.
3: Right? Right? I know, because we all think we're good at yeah. it. <laughs> we're not.
1: <laughs> so well that
4: that's interesting to me because one of the more accurate forms of lie detection is voice modulation. So mm-hmm. that makes me wonder if removing the video uh, just allows people to use maybe maybe it's a biological imperative that we we've developed over the mm-hmm. millennia to know when someone is, is is talking or speaking the truth that's fascinating stuff yeah.
3: but but bo- bottom line behavioral analysis in, in in looking at someone telling the truth is not an evidenced based way of judging mm truth telling yeah or lying
1: and we should also say the video that we have that we watched um I want everyone to know who's listening to this, who doesn't have access to that. I gotta say I don't feel you're missing much. Um, It's blurry. Uh, You get a really good view of the detective's top of his head. Um, You uh, see, you know, some activity happening physically, which we'll cover. But it's a small room. It's not easy. We're not seeing micro expressions. We're not seeing anything like that. At least my experience of the quality of the video was I have a sense of what Javi looks like. Would never be able to pick him out in a lineup. Um, Is that fair to say, everybody? I'd agree. Yeah. Okay. I would say also
4: there's, a. I mean, I would add that the interviewer, I think you touched on this last episode, the interviewer has just a lot of intonation throughout his voice, though, that is a, that is more telling than anything that Javier shares. And it's, and I think I can say this, probably for the bulk of people who listen to it, it's annoying. I mean, you really get annoyed with him for a number of reasons throughout the interview.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I, I,
3: my inclination is that he's not a very confident interviewer. Um, who knows why that is? Maybe he is new to the homicide unit. Maybe it's his style, um, or he knows Javier is not a suspect because he just it. There's this air that he he doesn't really care for one, and he's letting the camera do all the work. He's mm. barely taking notes. Um, he doesn't have a file with him about the case or anything like that. Um, and I will say that I roped my former homicide detective husband into watching this video just so I could say like, hey, um, am, I, am I gauging this right? Or he said this weird thing like, what is that about? Um, so some of this is coming from my consultation with this law enforcement officer Bonus that happens alert. to live in my house. Bonus alert, this is great. <laughs> um, but it's just, it, it, I'm sorry, go ahead, Doc.
2: No, it's really interesting that you picked that up because as a layman, I never, I missed all of that. You know, I honestly was kind of ruling it towards overconfidence in the interviewer. Not saying he's doing a good job, but like that mental overconfidence of like, oh yeah, I've got this. But I mm. missed all, of, I kind of missed what you're saying, but that's really interesting that you caught that because i never would have seen that.
4: That's for me, I mean, I love hearing Shiloh's perspective is always so valuable. I just I was so put off by the disengagement or what, what I was interpreting as a disengagement. And for all the listeners out there who who can't see the, the video on this, imagine, if you will, there's actually you can Google this. There's a Folgers commercial of a guy um, at an uh, he's doing a Zoom call. And he's got a mustache, and he's got his suit on, he's got his coffee cup, and kind of thinning hair, and he forgets he doesn't have pants on. And the guy looks so much like the cop, I could not get the Folgers theme out of my head while I was listening. It yeah, was crazy. That, that
3: video did go back and forth, as Scott and I were yeah. Yeah. in our, you know, <laughs> yeah. houses watching that. But I, it, it doesn't seem to be a very savvy or well-structured interview, and again, this is 2007, and... That was right around—that was a couple years before I left law enforcement, and there were a lot of different interview techniques floating around at the time. I feel like he kind of used a mishmash of a few of those. Um, so you have, you have a little bit of some of the, the stylistic things from, like, the baddie technique, which is its behavioral analysis— which we just said means nothing. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but, you know, like the sitting very close. And it's 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 very awkward how close they are together. There's no table in this room, and they're both shoved at the end of this room, which who cares what the detective looks like? You can have a camera over your shoulder as a detective just looking at the suspect, really right? Or point. the witness, sorry. Um, but they're, he's sitting very close, but it also isn't really super intimidating. So it's just, it's it's very, very odd. Um, then there's some read stuff like you guys picked up on, you know, some of the questioning. And then there's some some cognitive interviewing there, which is actually preferred method. Um, there, there's another method called PEACE. It's an acronym that seems to be the best. And that was actually developed by psychologists. And it comes out of the UK, PEACE, like Like, peace sign. Uh Um, And it's a lot of cognitive interviewing, but it's letting someone tell the story, building that rapport, let them tell the story. Sometimes you even have them tell it backwards because it's all about cognitions and processing. And if they're able to keep up with that and tell it backwards, it's just one of the many steps in it. Um, But it really speaks to how that person's brain is working to tell a lie or not or the truth without trying to have any influence of tripping them up or putting pressure on them. So he kind of has a little bit of everything, but doesn't really follow a flow or a structure of one technique.
1: Would that be—is that something that is sort of universally—would that be considered kind of a, a a disadvantage to having these different— or if it's a very experienced officer, a very experienced detective, rather, um, would— is it would that not make a difference do you know what i mean like would it be like well if they're good enough they can they can do that blend of techniques and maybe that will elicit something different or is it sort of understood that you should pick one and stay with it
3: you you should probably pick one and and stay with it unless you have sort of run its course and it's not working however with that you may have kind of blown it for the next style that you try if you used something else um so it it yeah i mean i i di- i didn't see a flow which was kind of a step by step with this guy it felt like he was kind of pulling from a different areas and that's why i say it just doesn't feel very savvy like he was confident in one particular type and it's hard i mean you know you guys interview people f- for a living as well in your podcast and it's it your cognitive uh, or not cognitive processing but like your attentional capacity the ability to hear what someone's saying but also think about where your question is going is hard that's we have a limited amount of attention it's like a it's like a bucket and every spoonful you take out to put somewhere that leaves less to work with uh-huh. <laughs> and to toggle back and forth between this sort of executive functioning thinking is really difficult so I definitely empathize with investigators, especially when the stakes are so high, like a a homicide investigation, that you gotta know what you're doing and where is this going and how are you reacting to what the person's saying. But it's so nice to know that something that's more cognitively structured is an interview. One is more evidence-based, but also you just let them do all the talking. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not working as hard.
1: Zach, do you want to quickly just tell people um, if you had the same impression I did? Not to say that this means anything. I'm not attaching any meaning to it, but just in terms of again getting a picture of this tiny room, this tiny cubicle where the two of them are sitting so close together that at times I think Javi's toe is actually touching the cop's toe. Um, they but do what seem would you, really close. I mean, right? It, and it, and is part of that what Javi's doing? Like, can you describe sort of his opening? Position and like where he stays for almost forty minutes of the interview. Do you remember?
2: You know, I'm trying to reimagine what he's doing, but he he just seems just very comfortable in there to begin with. I mean, he doesn't seem overly concerned. He doesn't seem overly worried about this officer. I mean, he's just kind of lounging in a chair, waiting.
1: He's like, yeah, he's. I think the comfort you're talking about. If we If you want to put it, again, into a posturing that doesn't necessarily mean anything, could mean he's a super confident liar, could mean whatever. But to be in that small of a space... He's leaning forward. He's like leaning forward with his hands on his knees. He's actually putting his face closer to the cops. Mm-hmm. Whereas my yeah. reaction to that were uh, twofold. Not that it like not, I'm not the expert, but number one, I have all these back and neck problems, and I thought, oh my god, I would be so shifty in my seat. I would be constantly <laughs> touching and rubbing and like moving, and they would be like, she's guilty as hell. She's <laughs> guilty as hell. She is shifting position eighteen yeah. times. And then also, but I did also think like, oh wow, I. I don't think I would want to be that close. I feel like I would do that sort of thing that you might do, which is to kind of try to create more space for yourself. But he's he's really just up in it. Um, well, Javier and for, for, for an 18 time. or
2: 19-year-old kid, he seems really comfortable in that situation. Yeah.
1: And maybe it's because his dad is a, an investigator. I don't know if you it guys remember be. that from the last episode. Yeah. But I think we mentioned that Javi is the kid whose dad is, a, is an investigator, I believe, for the DA.
3: See, and I I think that that doesn't necessarily lead to comfortability. And, you know, this is a kid whose dad is a DA investigator. His mom is running for state Senate at the time, right? Like he's, he's representing the family. And I imagine that's a ton of pressure. Um, Just also myself being a kid of law enforcement parents that I know when I got in trouble, (laughs) it was not a comfortable moment because, you know, one, you're representing, but also you're going to have to face your parents at some point. Um, But I think that is huge for what we call impression management, how you want to present and how you're going to appear to whomever you're presenting in front of, especially in a situation like this. Not to say that he was... um, there was anything really indicative of him trying to, you know, hide something or be helpful or nervous. I just think we have to acknowledge that that had to influence his behavior here. And yeah. the cop too, like, oh, this is a DA investigator's kid. Yeah. To some extent.
1: Scott, do you have a sort of 10,000 foot view uh, coming away from the interview about Javier and, and kind of how it went for him and what he offered up and stuff?
4: Yeah, I have a couple of perspectives i mean i really like i was saying earlier i i really value when i get challenged and or when i when i find out that i've got another bias like i just love that you know when we can kind of look at ourselves internally and see a bias and you know this i caught myself at the end of the multiple listenings going back to one of the most famous experiments in in uh, modern psychiatry and psychology was between 1969 and 1972, um, eight students who were either students of mental health disciplines, social work, psychology, or they were already licensed, submitted themselves to mental hospitals Mm. around the country.
1: Mm.
4: And they did not, uh, all they did was that they asserted that they heard voices and, and saw visual hallucinations They did not alter their behaviors. You know, they journaled, they laid around, they ate their meals, they interacted with people, kept to themselves, basically just were were housed. But what we got from that was really great information because they subpoenaed or they, they got all the medical records, I'm using air quotes here, of these people that were supposedly mentally ill. And the perspectives of the psychiatric clinicians on the unit were all completely biased because they were looking through the lens expecting them to be mentally ill. Hmm. So these were people that weren't mentally ill. But every innocuous <laughs> behavior was in, was interpreted through that lens. So long story short, I just found myself doing that same thing. Like I was, I was watching it going, what is going on with this guy? What is going on? Like he is so wordy and so verbose and he's sharing so much. And I I, like Shiloh was saying, there are so many factors like this person could be under a lot of pressure because of what his parents are pursuing. Um, I do think that there's something really fascinating just about the way he shares information. But I don't I really don't know if it has anything to do with anything. Um, I came away with something that and like, please, listeners out there understand what I'm saying. I feel like he does have a secret. Of types of of some sort. And, but I don't think it has anything to do with the crime. I mean, like that wasn't my impression at all, but he's holding a lot of information. And I'm also sort of observed, and it made me think after listening to Shiloh's expertise on this is the interviewer was not that great. And he was not structured in a way that made any sense to me as a, as a someone who has never done that type of interviewing. But maybe he was overwhelmed with the amount of information he was getting. It was like trying to sip from a a fire hose in a way. Mm. Right?
1: Yeah, that's a really good analogy. It's too bad Bob's not here. He's so sad that a fire hose reference was made and he's on assignment.
3: Yeah.
2: I want to go back to one thing you just said, Dr. Scott. And you were talking about how he seems like he has something to hide. Can we dive into a second of like... Understanding like lying because you have guilty knowledge and and lying because you're uncomfortable. I mean, I feel like those are two totally different things.
4: Oh yeah, oh, withholding.
1: Yeah, I love that, Zach. I'm so glad you brought that up. And yeah, it could also apply, like you were saying, Scott, to even if it's not lying, if it's just withholding. You know, withholding information. Can we parse that out and what does it mean? Especially coming from teenagers.
4: Well, yeah, there were some like you you guys touched on this last episode. There were some really inappropriate. And unnecessary questions being asked regarding his potential sexual orientation. Um, you know what he was doing. He was also like trying to hold Javier to these this bizarre sort of puritanical expectations of what teenage boys are supposed to be experiencing, which is just bullshit. Like to not understand that. Don't don't you know? Don't try and cookie cutter. A teenager's experience. This is a kid who really cared deeply about his friends. And, you know, he's trying to process it in his own way. I, anyway, I just, I just think that there was something going on. There is a difference, like Zach was saying, that, you know, hiding information versus withholding is very important here. But he's also, it seemed to me, I think that the withholding is still not indicating that it's anything pertaining to what the detective is there to try and divine, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, I mean, don't you guys think it would have been much more helpful and probably would have elicited more information if the detective said, Hey, when I was a teenager, we didn't just drive around. Like, I don't understand that. Can you just explain to me, you know, why you guys do that? Or what, what is that about these days? you know kind of we we um in crisis negotiation when we're asking questions that maybe we even know the answer to we call it the columbo technique where you're uh-huh. just like help me i don't understand like just help me figure this out one more thing you know sure for anyone that's old enough to remember Columbo, who's listening, you'll get it. But
4: and by the way, that really works. It totally it works. works as a clinician. I I do it in I do it in therapy sessions all the time because it's non-confrontational. I'm not telling you that I'm completely appalled by this self-harming behavior you've engaged in right. but I'm going to be curious about it so yeah. help me understand how we got here
3: yeah it's not Love judgy that. and right. i think we can say that you know what scott was saying it's almost as if the detective is comparing what he thinks or what how he was perhaps as a teenager projecting that and judging javier for things that actually aren't that terrible <laughs> Um But well, look,
4: let let's talk about our conversation because you and I were going back and forth about this, and you know I'm I'm a I'm you know I'm a yeah. slightly different generation than everybody else in this Zoom room today, and I was asking questions, and Shiloh was texting me. She's like, "What else is there to do?" And by the way, I am an Idlewild addict. Like I I was just in Idlewild last weekend. I like I'm up there all the time. It's a beautiful mountain place. The desert surrounding that is really beautiful. But as Shiloh pointed out very succinctly, there's nothing to do.
1: I said there's nothing to do. It's either drive around or do meth. That's what I said. (laughs) I mean, that was Tucson, Arizona, which I think we talked about at some point. Yeah, this feeling like... We got the desert, we got your, you might get some cool air blowing on you if you yeah. are in a moving car, that sort of increases your chances. If your car doesn't have air conditioning, that becomes important. What music are you listening to? Like, sure. that's a, that's a way to kill time without just sitting in front of the television or what have you.
4: So even if the detective had, under, had a better understanding of the teenage experience or the young adult experience, he could have been more curious and maybe elicited... You know, maybe Javier's could have been could have given an answer like, "Dude, there's nothing else to do. All my friends were working. Might as well go for a drive, you know, or yeah. play video games again, or watch the same movie I've already seen." You know, it really gave a picture of that. There's just not a lot of stimulation outside of this very close knit um, friendship group.
1: Yeah, it seemed like the driving thing was he really the, the detective seemed like he was really trying to use that as a gotcha moment. He just kept digging for a gotcha moment that wasn't happening because whatever the motive was or the motivation, and and I don't know, you know how much you guys want to to lean into that, but you know there is some ambiguity with okay, so you drove, you were just driving to drive, um, but then. You can you did happen to be near Becky's and then later in the story, suddenly Becky is asking you to come over and then you're not going over. Um. So I. he does. It does seem like the detective sort of trying to sniff out inconsistencies or sniff out a deeper meaning in something. Yeah. But that it's but for the most part, Javi is extremely confident about exactly where he was, oh. when things were happening. Answer he for pulls everything. out his own phone and, so- and hands it to the guy.
4: I was going to say, and that part sounds so genuine that it almost, and it's funny because we've referenced this probably in the last three episodes, it almost started feeling like the SNL Californians sketch. Uh-huh. Because he starts talking and he's giving detailed, oh yeah, well I took, you know, I went up to Anza, I was using the 334, but I was on da-da-da-da. And he's naming all of the county roads and and freeways that you take to navigate this mountain area, which is so specific it felt like it threw the detective off because like you were saying he kept trying to make that into something and it was just a nothing burger
1: yeah yeah did you guys get a feel for whether parts of the things felt rehearsed like i'm sure he'll ask me about this so i'm going to have this ready to go versus territory that maybe was less expected like did you have any feelings about um disproportionate like, over-informing and confident-informing, and I, I'm genuinely not sure that that exists. I'm just, like, wondering if there was stuff he was planning on being asked that, came, that the answers seemed different than stuff he wasn't, because I think we talked about that with the Robert interview, so I was wondering if that you use that lens for this.
3: There's nothing in his interview that indicates that for me, but I thought, again, as a law enforcement person's son, they had to have had a conversation before he went in mm-hmm. there. Right. He's not a minor, so his parents aren't accompanying him in the interview or voluntarily letting him, you know, be interviewed alone as a minor. But there had to be a conversation right, of something, you know, not not that they were planning things out. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, hey, you might expect that they're going to ask about this um, or a timeline. So start thinking about it. Like, start thinking about where you were that night, something you know, along those lines.
2: Maybe it wasn't rehearsed, but there was a moment early in the interview where where the detective asked him who he thought he could or who he thought could have done it. And he immediately says, well, I I would eliminate my cousin. He would never do that. I mean, that felt like he had already thought of that going in because there was no hesitation. You know, and obviously it's his family. Maybe he's just protecting his family. But it just seemed like I mean, that rolled off his tongue right away to me.
3: Yeah, I mean, when he asked, "Who do you think you could do that? Who could do this?" I mean, Robert's name rolled off his tongue, and then when he mm-hmm. said, "Who do you want to exclude?" his his cousin rolled off his tongue. I don't know what to make of that. Um, I it, it's also such an odd question. This is also something my husband and I talked about. Of okay, who who could you exclude? And he could have said, "Well, I don't know. I could exclude the whole world. Like I, I just yeah. like." <laughs> It's just, it is a very odd interview question.
4: I, you know, in, in terms, of, yeah, that is, was jarring. Um, I'd also say that making a, more of a general statement about being over prepared is that when people are recalling things from memory, generally there will be just a, a, a slight pause as they're really... Access, you know, using random access memory in their brain, like okay, I got to go to the place where I stored this response, and I didn't see any of that at all. I saw him thinking and sort of synthesizing, processing information, but it didn't really see that. The seemed like there was a lot of overly prepared information. Uh, it was a lot of information, though. He just like it was so much detail, and then I guess you know, informed by what Shiloh said earlier. If there's not a lot of, lot to do, you remember the minutiae of your day.
1: Good point. Hmm. Good point. Do you have a sense, and again, anything that feels like it's, you know, trying to dig too deeply for what we should or shouldn't be doing um, here, please say. But um, did you get a sense of like the, a sense of your, of his dynamic with Becky? Not to say that there's like a universal empirical truth about their their friendship dynamic, but did but did you perceive a takeaway that's sort of like this is how he described the relationship, and therefore this is how I, I think he sees it or he's experiencing it? Is that the most muddled question of all time? Yes. Yeah,
3: totally, Janet. No, great. You're um, welcome. You're
1: welcome.
3: <laughs> I I um, what he's saying about how close they are does not feel far-fetched to me. It seems like the detective can't comprehend that a girl can just have a really close guy friend and that a guy can just have a really close girlfriend and not be sexually into her. So I, I believe that that could be the case. For me, it's like... But this was only for three months. Like, I would have expected them to be besties for a very long time the way he was describing it. And again, I'm sorry. Like, I don't have an explanation beyond that. I just—maybe it was just sort of the the honeymoon phase of this new really close relationship. And he was probably a safe guy for her. She had had a lot of people in her life that don't sound like they were very safe. Mm. So, of course, you're going to be on the phone with him all the time and— you know, even just the stupid little things. And that's what we did back then. You know, you, you're on the phone with someone all the time. Even the little things, people of that age happens all the time. Like, I don't know why that was so hard to wrap their head around.
2: As you bring that up, I I did mention, or you did mention that it was a very short period of time. They were actually really close friends. It's like three month window. But he yeah. says in the interview, I don't want to lose this lifelong friend I've had. Is it him trying to portray something more?
3: No, I think he's talking about he meant he was going to have her as a lifelong friend for the rest of his life. Okay. Like kind of yeah. the loss of, you know, the their future together as friends is what okay. I heard.
4: I, I really think that this speaks to a, a one of a, a huge problem in Western culture about how men are not allowed to have Cultural, You know, culturally, we're not allowed really, a, you know, a, a straight man is really not allowed to have a non-sexual relationship with a woman. I mean, it's just implied. Um, there may be some other cultural aspects in his own family or his own upbringing. But I got the impression that this was somebody that he felt safe with. That just was the overwhelming feeling I got. He felt safe they shared things. And like Shiloh was saying, I think she felt safe with him because he doesn't seem to be the typical East Palm Springs guy right. you know, or East Desert guy.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, So it's it sounds like it was a, a big loss to him. Um, But it, it is very interesting that, that the detective just can't wrap his mind around it, yeah. which is kind of a problem. If you're a detective, like you got to be able to consider. All sort of the spectrum of relationships or else you're going to you're going to make a lot of assumptions that could be wildly incorrect.
1: Yeah, I, I would say again, this is just speaking from my own experience, but I should it should it someday turn out that we find out that Javi was in love with her and just wanted to be with her as much as he could, whatever that looked like. I also had a lot of friendships like that in high school, you know, I had a lot I had I had friends that I would have loved to have had something more with. um, But because I didn't and I did cherish them, I was happy to keep it where it was. And I know that there I was the recipient of those feelings in cases where I would have been the one to say, you know, even if it's tempting, let's just be friends. I really don't want to ever. Have something upset this this dynamic because I do do make me feel safe. I do you clearly respect me. I ca- I'm a caregiver for you. Those things are ultimately more important when you're trying to to be the grown up that you're not yet. But it's sort of trying that on and and really cherishing those friendships. So even if he had feelings for her, um, even that doesn't have to be a gotcha because I understand that that statistically, you know things, but. It seems just as unlikely that he's going to snap because she didn't want to date him as, you know what I'm saying? And then like somehow three people end up dead in a burned house. Like, so even that feels like, even if that were true, I feel like we all agree that that doesn't mean that, you know, it's the like him, them being platonic versus them being him having a romantic interest doesn't, it might be an, it might be a risk factor, but it also might just be like, you know what? He might've had feelings for her. Eh. Yeah, he no, still f- felt very tender towards her. Okay. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I think— I don't know. So, again, I just kind
3: of honed in on this area since we're here. You know how Scott said earlier, I feel like he has a secret. And this is really one of those places where if there was a secret there, when I listened to the audio, I felt like it was around here. So, that could be a, a few things. It could be that he really was in love with her and just respecting the space. It Maybe it does speak to his sexuality, but when the detective asks the first time, help me understand this common bond between the two of you, Javier does not answer the question. He says it wasn't sexual or anything like that. He does not answer the question, and then the detective Mm. comes back around and says more directly, what do you guys have in common? And then he's able to articulate it, but his first impression is to distance himself between what he thinks the detective is alluding to mm-hmm. in his mind. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I don't know any more than that, but I feel like if there's a secret there, it might have to be in this area again could have absolutely zero to do with the crime. <laughs>
2: Does it strike you, either of you, weirdly when he immediately, when the, the detective asks about her financial status, kind of like, she works two days a week, what does she do with her money? And Javier immediately kind of brings up the, well, she's not buying or selling or anything, but I don't really, you know, I don't know what she does with her money. And and I felt that was very strange. And like, you keep bringing up a secret. I mean, is there anything that could allude in there, maybe?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think perhaps it could, it could be, um... You know, he says that she's the one that goes and gets it, right? He even offered that information when they even when they all smoked with John, yeah, that she would be the one to get it. So maybe there are some connections there if she knows a seller and she's a buyer, that maybe there's more to that. Maybe not. Maybe it's just like, oh crap, also I have just admitted that I smoke weed and my dad's in law enforcement and all of that. It's hard to say, but it could be what the secret revolves around. It
2: it just struck me weird that he immediately offered that up that, you know, the, I didn't feel like the detective was alluding to that. He was alluding to like, what does she do with her money? And he kind Mm. of offers up the, well, she's not buying or selling or anything.
3: Yeah, he's vomiting at the mouth all over the place in this interview. Yeah. So you know, again, if whether it's he's trying to be helpful or he's trying to deflect or whatever, he's he's offering a lot of information that I feel like he might even think the detective's going to ask or wants to know. Like, don't right. read his mind; just answer the question.
4: <laughs> and and along those lines, like you said, you know, given who his parents are, it's very unlikely they didn't have some kind of conversation. And I can imagine that that would be a possible topic that would come up that's like, hey, if you guys have been, if Becky was going and, and buying weed for you, you know, I don't know, maybe they he was given advice on how to respond to that. It didn't seem like it was a very quick response.
1: Mm. Um, without necessarily needing to touch the implications on Becky's side of the things that that Javi volunteers um do you have any thoughts about his kind of willingness to volunteer information about self-harm or suicide attempts or eating disorders? Um, any any thoughts around that as far as his motivation or how that sort of tumbled out as part of the o- information overload?
3: It goes with the pattern of how he is throughout this entire interview. Yeah. Just giving a lot of information. Um, and I know you guys discussed this of like, okay, is he trying to make him self seem like he knows everything about her. Um, and again, we're working with this three month, like bestie honeymoon phase two, or, or how long they've been really close. So there's some things that, you know, I think he just, he knows he holds is a holder of a lot of her secrets and he has that and that if it's important to this case, maybe he needs to spill that. So,
4: I mean, that also speaks to the the rapidity with which their intimacy develops is that they're getting to the point that quickly sharing, you know, her deepest experiences of, of, of those uh, particular behaviors. And that's not something that, I mean, look, adolescent relationships can develop, can develop very quickly. Um, and I, I don't, there's a lot of controversy out there about whether or not that's actually True intimacy or it's faux intimacy, but seriously, something seems to have gone on with him where maybe that is the secret, is that they found safe space in each other to share some things that were not run-of-the-mill teenage issues. Hmm. It was a lot deeper, and it just developed quickly, this need to protect each other.
1: Hmm. I really like that. I really like that that perspective and possibility. Um, there was something else I was going to ask. Uh, oh, I think I have now officially crossed over into exactly what you were talking about earlier, Scott, where you sort of start to hyper-analyze everything, especially on multiple listens, because things sort of float to the surface and other things recede because you sort of already chewed on those. And so something new rises and you're like, ooh, maybe I should gnaw on this for a second. And that doesn't necessarily speak at all to the real relevance of it it's just kind of where you are in your brain and your process
4: that's so apt yeah
1: <laughs> but um I, I i find myself hovering we did not talk about this much although you definitely brought it up zach i think um on the follow-up but this idea of she told me she changed her myspace password but i didn't really believe her so i got up in the morning one day at 5 a.m and tried her Old MySpace password and it worked. Something about that bubbled to the surface for me this last time, where I was like, "Wow, that's an interesting look in the di- into the relationship." But it's not enough, so I'm trying to make something out of nothing, and that's not my privilege. But I'm like, "Oh, it's interesting that like why did she tell him she changed her password? If well, like you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I I I got caught on that."
4: So my reaction, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I didn't put a bullet point for that. But my reaction to that particular share was, immediate, was almost the same as yours. Like, okay, this, is, this feels weird. And then I was like, wait, 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 wait. Let me pull back and look at the context of the to- amount of time that has passed. Is we, Our lives are ruled by electronics and social media now in a way that absolutely did not exist then. I mean, you know, when we're talking about a MySpace page, because my immediate reaction was like, well, wait, why do they have passwords? Like, you know, in today's world, it's like, you're not going to, you're not going to get a password out of me for anything, right? Right. Because it's, it's a key into, into our entire digital lives. But that's looking through a a modern lens on something that was um, a decade and a half ago. So maybe it's just innocuous, like, why would you share something like that? It may have much less meaning than any of us are trying. You know, one of the, one is that had a supervisor years ago who, because we use the term in therapy called process. Let's, let's, let's process this between us. Let's process this trauma, this emotion. And Larry is really cool because he goes, I hate that word process because it sounds like we're just. Grinding down that's meat into true. mush where there's no texture left anymore and it doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah. So sometimes staring at something too long causes everything to get blurry.
1: Yeah. I think that's what happened because I really went into the analysis of it wasn't even so much the password itself, it was the hyper analysis of why would she tell him I changed my MySpace password why would he then not believe that she changed her MySpace password and then try, like, that Is was that what caught me. Is the he said she used?
3: because He said, I, he said I like, she sh- said
1: she changed her MySpace password, but, I don't know, I didn't really believe her. So that that oh. was the weird, that was the weird for me, was okay. like, and I- why did she tell him she changed her password? Was it because he, she knew he knew it? And she was like, and by the way, don't go snooping around in my MySpace because I changed my password. And he was like, yeah. okay, I won't. And then in his mind he was like, but what if she didn't change her password? Yeah, like that's that, I got caught and up in that. And why would that you like, share I, that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole like, thing meant well, I'm trying to make so much of something so small.
3: Meant like nothing to me, but the uh-huh. way that I heard it, which <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go back and listen fair, because so I might fair. have totally heard it different. But was that he said? Yeah, she said she was going to change her password, so I logged on to see if she did. Yeah, and then he gets on, realized that she didn't, and he's like, "Oh shit, I should get yeah. off of this." And. I would have done that.
1: I would have done that same thing. <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, I definitely would have tried a password. I got, ca- I got caught up in why did she say she changed it? She and it? then he was like, but I didn't believe she had. But wouldn't it be great that, if the I detective the said, oh my God, like, I know. Absolutely. hey,
3: did she tell you why Absolutely.
1: she changed yeah. it? Was she scared Absolutely. of someone? Was someone what, harassing her? What was Absolutely. that
4: about? Yeah, just yeah. be
1: curious. Yeah. And the same with with the Robert thing where there's, there's this sort of confusing part where he said, and Zach, please stop me if I'm just like, now I'm, I'm verbal vomiting myself. <laughs> but he says, but, but when he says, like, he says, well, Robert said he didn't go and I believed him. And then I, and so, it's something like that. And then the detective is like, well, why did you believe him? And then Javi says something like, well, I just had this gut feeling that he didn't go. And he said he didn't go, but I don't know. So it's this weird, like, wait, you had a gut feeling that Robert was telling you the truth, but you're, you continue to volunteer his name over and over again. So there was sort of some tumbling around that that I felt like could have gotten clarification in the moment from the detective and it just never got there. There's a few
2: times that he kind of stumbles a few uh, around a few things like that that are a little confusing. At some point, the detective asks about Robert and Becky and he says, well, they stayed together because Becky was pregnant. And that's why they stayed together. That whole
1: area is mind is baffling to me. Yeah, and then he turns around and says,
2: well, they broke up and Robert didn't know that she was pregnant. But but three seconds before that, he said they stayed together because she was pregnant.
1: Yeah.
3: It
2: it, it seemed really strange.
3: So doesn't that take us back to Robert's interview when he was asked why they broke up? And he says, Mm -hmm. oh, because she started smoking weed again. So is Robert harboring a secret? And... a secret that is he trying to protect her or not out that there was a pregnancy or whatever. But remember, I think we all thought that was kind of wonky. Like really? Like, cause she started smoking again. Like that's mm-hmm. the reason. And now we have this additional information that might be the actual truth yeah. that maybe they broke up because of, you know, this, this pregnancy for whatever reason, but it, and if you want to keep going on that, we can, but I think also Javier's, explanation as to why becky and jacob broke up is wonky for me because mm. these are the two closest people to him mm-hmm. and he gives like three different sort mm. of random reasons as to why they broke up mm. which is weird like oh, okay first well he wanted to smoke marijuana again after not doing it for a few weeks then they're bickering and a lot of little fights and then you know she doesn't have time for a boyfriend it was just all over the place and i'm like You have to know the real deal because you know these two.
1: And also carrying the through line of she still loves Robert. He's her first love. That's sort of that's kind of playing. He's got it so that that's playing over all of it, too. You know what I mean? Like. What were you going to say, Scott?
4: I I just thought it was also that, that there was that was a throwaway thing that it may mean nothing or it may have great significance is that. What was that about? What are you implying when you're sharing that he had not smoked for three weeks and she didn't want him to, but he did. So are they implying that there was a problem, that they had had a conflict, that mm-hmm. you're smoking too much? I don't like it when you smoke that much. I don't want you to smoke so much. I mean, there, it seemed like that was a whole, like, again, why didn't the detective go in that direction unless I missed something? Like, that would have sent, that would have been a, a very interesting avenue to go down.
1: Yeah yeah and i'm i continue to be so curious about him saying you know what if i told you jacob said they were still together no but what if i told you that he did tell me that they were still dating like what is he hoping for whether or not that's true i'm just curious what his, what that what that particular tactic and that particular what if what he thinks is going to come of that. Or maybe he just doesn't even know and he's just wondering, like, well, maybe if I say Jacob said they were still together, this kid will tell me something different now. Right.
3: Yeah, just again, like more read technique thrown in that we know of now because we haven't heard Jacob's interview yet. And maybe there is something conflicting, but that and and some other what if hypotheticals um, to get him to admit to something that he hasn't admitted to or kind of peppered throughout this whole thing.
1: Yeah. If if there is truth to what Javi reports um, Becky had gone through um, and this the way he talks about it, it sounds like it's all prior to their actual friendship being the rich friendship that it was in, in at the time that she died. Um, if there's truth to that, does that call out any kind of victimology or risk factor that is useful to. Where to look or anything like that—is um, is that—is that—is that useful or is it just kind of a wow? That's a you know that's a that's a place a lot of teenagers find themselves. Um, well, we're talking about a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Teenage
3: pregnancy, self harm, suicidal ideation, and/or attempts. Um, it, it, that's a cluster of a lot of things going on, which. Maybe people would be surprised to know that that's not very uncommon for teenagers and teenage girls in particular and to maybe have a cluster of those things happening. Um, But I know you did ask the question in in your last follow-up, Janet, like, well, does that mean, like, is she putting herself in riskier situations or is she um, sort of of asking, like, is she distraught enough to maybe just— I don't
1: know. I I I, guess that's what you're
3: asking us now. Yeah, make it to to just just,
1: uh, be in a situation or or make a choice that potentially puts her in in more danger because she's not looking out for her safety. Um, Again, could not be far further away from victim blaming. I was I was that girl in many ways. Um, I just look back at stuff I did and I'm like, wow. I'm so lucky that nothing worse happened uh-huh. to me. I think a lot oh, of people feel that way. Oh right? God, all when of we us. Look and, back, oh.
4: But then that's also just, that's, that's humanity. That's, yeah. you know, and, and that's part of our culture and it's part of having an underdeveloped pre prefrontal cortex. You know, this is this front, front part of our brains. that's all responsible for executive functioning. That's the last thing to finally kind of gel, you know, by the time you're, 26 or 27 years old which is kind of crazy because like you think about our lifespan used to end at 35 so you only get your full brain functioning about five years before you're <laughs> oh, dead so of bubonic cruel. plague or something that's so cruel and cruel. but it's it's fascinating and you know when you talk about that sort of is there a nexus between self-harm and victimology and we're not saying Becky we're, we're talking you know kind of globally and it's really n- not necessarily I mean there's sort of a a wonky then diagram of over of overlap, but you know impulsivity is it's been known to be a risk factor for suicide for a long time, and we know that impulsivity in, involves like a breakdown or sometimes a, a failure of what we call that higher order control for processes like decision making. Um, but there have to be other factors, you know, because it's complex. My take on this is that how of how it generally would apply to this situation is there has to be a huge buildup to get to that point, And that would be noticeable. So you would be seeing in a situation like we're sort of conjecturing for this, you would be seeing um, intense mood symptoms, whether it's anxiety or depression, um, suicidal ideation that probably would have some leakage that would be expressed to someone as well as maybe some gestural stuff. So it's, it's not like, like an immediate snap, even though there is impulsivity there. And like what we know is that a lot of completed suicides are, are a result of impulsivity. But none of that really seems to be fitting right here. I'm not seeing I mean there's a, a strong um factor and I'm so sorry for anybody that's out there listening. I've got three helicopters circling my apartment right now if you oh can hear gosh. that so i know it's distracting hi it
1: that's usually we probably live happened. near each other cuz so i always they found have the me again
4: <laughs> they found me again i've got to go into hiding <laughs> but right there, you know um there's this concept called trait impulsivity and that's when a person is um is predisposed towards like rapid, really unplanned reactions to their thoughts, their feelings, or to stimuli in their environment. And so those people can act on impulse without regard to any of the potential negative consequences. Um, So that just doesn't really, for me, in this sort of um, squirrel's eye view of Mm -hmm. what's going on here, I'm not seeing a lot of that. But then again, we don't have all of the data. Right. But I'm, I'm not seeing anything that, especially Javi is not particularly, who is so open with so much information about the intimacy that they shared, yeah. it seems like we would have seen more indications of um, conflict between them, yeah. you know, like uh, intimate partner violence or intense arguments. And it's just, I'm not seeing a lot of that mm-hmm. unless I'm missing something. Well, and he Shiloh, is putting a lot think? of it
1: in the past tense, too. So it may be something, you know, it sounds like that was something that, you know, perhaps was, had been worked through to a certain degree and could be yes. referred to as as past tense. Okay, And, by, and I will That's also add it really quick, Shiloh, before you say anything, just to get this out. Also, all of the things that he described could also cause you to stay inside and never do anything. So uh, in terms of contributing to risk factors, like you're going out and exposing yourself to dangers, um, all of those things, self-harm, eating disorder, all of that stuff can absolutely lead to just staying at home. Yeah. So, and then in which case you are not putting, you're actually reducing your risk. You're, shu-
4: you're shutting down in order yeah. to save yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Cause that was going to
3: be a, a, sort of one of my points is that, okay, if you, it's all about behavior and behavior patterns. And if we are trying to say that victimology, current victimology for her at the time that she died, does that jive with behavior? Well, that behavior was in the past. If it was happening now and Javier was saying that, you know, these are things she's doing, I I don't even know if we can make that leap then. But I think important point. I also want to say that self-harm doesn't always mean suicidal
1: ideation. People self-harm for many, many many different reasons. Thank you for saying Um, that. 100,000% agree. So
3: those two things can be totally two separate things. Um, People who drink different things they have around the house to induce sickness— can be a type of self-harm that people then interpret as a suicide attempt. And of course has to be treated that way to just cover all bases and be safe. But I don't have numbers, but I would guess teenage girls choosing to drink hydrogen peroxide or something that's actually not going to kill them. But it is some of the, um, it, it, it fits more with some of the reasons and ways that people self-harm. Yeah. Could be a thing. Yeah. Um, also, if we're talking a history of suicidal ideation, typically with females, you know, it's more of those traditional symptoms of depression that precede that, right? So the staying in bed, covering your head with the covers, drawing the curtains, not wanting to talk to anyone, crying spells. With men, they tend to have the acting out behaviors hmm. when they're depressed. Hmm. So we we thought for many, many years that women suffered at of Suffered from depression at twice the rate that men did. We just finally figured out we weren't looking at the right symptoms. Hmm. Men act out. You mentioned that
1: on your podcast. Side note, everyone should listen to their podcast. Side note, please go listen to every episode of their podcast.
3: So if we're saying, like, okay, is she acting out in some of these ways, like hanging around with shady characters or using substances or whatever um, as a part of her victimology, typically and generally that behavior pattern does not fit for females.
1: Okay. So just to reiterate where we came in for this conversation, um, we're still not talking about suspects. We're still not talking about Javi being guilty of anything. We're not talking about whether or not he's being truthful in a way as to point, a a shine a light on him as being, you know, anything that we need to be worried about, that we're just not in that phase. This really is still about trying to better understand The people involved trying to feel compassion for the people involved, um, trying to figure out what happened that day and the days leading up and trying to parse out all of the information that all of these different people are saying and trying to create a picture um, because this is such a complicated case that it's taking a really long time just to get all of those different snapshots and to try to shape them into something that feels comfortable enough to move on from. As we continue to look at, oh, this is how the police investigated it. This is what the trial looked like and all of that kind of stuff. So I just yeah. thought I would reiterate that.
2: Yeah. And, and you yeah. Know, one thing I want to bring up and Dr. Scott brought it up a long time ago in this at the beginning of this was I, and I, I took it away. And I, Dr. Scott obviously took it away. And I think Dr. Shiloh took it away. But is the fact that like Javier doesn't seem to have a lot of guilty knowledge, but it does seem like he knows something. What it is, we don't know. But there's something that's going on there in this interview. Am am, am I mistaken by saying that?
1: Whether it's about this or about something utterly unrelated to the case.
4: I'm going to be even more general um, and follow up on my or double down on my previous statement. I just think that there's something that he's omitting. But I don't but that's no indication that it has anything to do with the crime. I just feel like there's something personally going on for him that he's obfuscating a bit in the interview. But, but it's, you know, again, we are third party observers, you know, a decade and a half out. um, And there are a lot of factors that I'm sure are out of our purview. But there's, it it just seems like there's something that, and I don't even want to use the word evasive. I just feel like there's a secret.
1: Yeah. Which it might be only the, we might only perceive that because he's so open in every other way. A person who is more guarded Possibly. in general as a guard, you know, you might not even perceive that. But he is volunteering so much that, you know, it, getting a, a sense of a trace of something being left behind. It's like, well, gosh, you know, most people probably wouldn't even volunteer that much. And it might not even it might not even come through. Um, but like you said, there's so many factors. Um, but this has been so illuminating and uh you know thank you for letting us play along and feel like we had the minds and uh, skills and experience that we super don't uh, <laughs> right zach
4: <laughs> absolutely and well and- i love that i love that you guys care i mean there's just something that is and i mean we we all work in this um this milieu of of crime and to to try and not lose sight of the fact that people lost their lives And we're all just trying to understand why, how did this, you know, how could this happen and, and what's, what is the motivation behind it and, and respect the loss. And I think that's something else that Javier is probably, you know, that felt a lot of loss that must've been incredibly jarring.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Dr. Shiloh, Dr. Scott, thank you for joining us tonight. You guys can check out their podcast, the LA not so confidential podcast. You can find it everywhere. I believe, am I wrong? You are not wrong. All right. So, thank you guys for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having us back. We so we much fun. It. Thank you. We're just yeah. gonna
1: keep dragging you back again and again. And you I sounds know, you, good. and we know how busy you are. So, truly, thank you for your time. And we promise we will actually not try to drag you in too much because you're doing busy, important, great things. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.
2: Bye, guys.
0: Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook and for all you tweeters out there you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod and I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Bob Ruff Truth. and don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions comments or tips on our cases that phone number is 269-224-2833 however you do it stay engaged stay in touch but as for now I'm signing off I'm Bob Ruff and this has been Truth and Justice so